So today's program, we are devoted to the topic of hidden stresses that result in 50% of the symptoms that go undiagnosed from testing. To lead us in this discussion is Dr. David Clark. He is an assistant clinical professor of medicine with the Oregon Health and Science University and a clinical instructor at Pacifica University and a member of the Academy of Psychosomatic Medicine. And he's board certified in gastroenterology and internal medicine and practices um, up in Portland. Nice to have you with us today. Thank you, Gary. It's great to be here. Well, you've got a book that's called They Can't Find Anything Wrong. What I'd like to do is go through the seven steps of understanding and treating and healing stress illness because I believe, as you heard from some of the anecdotal statements, that we don't even consider what it means to get a diagnosis, what it means to be in a stressful relationship, performing on any task where we're going to be judged, and what that can do to our body. So if you could take us now, almost like a classroom on the air, we have no interruptions, no commercials, and help us with childhood stresses. What happens if we experience at some point low self-esteem and uh, being ridiculed or feeling unworthy, feeling like we're nothing? What if there's been sexual abuse or neglect of emotions? And uh, what if we witness violence What if we've been made responsible for things inappropriate for a child, feeling fearful in the home environment, and then take us through the different types of environments like stress occurring now, midlife crisis, um, stress from traumatic events, depression, anxiety, and show us what role stress plays in all these and how we frequently don't consider it when we're making evaluations. Thank you, Gary. Uh, You know, your introduction uh, is a tremendous uh, testament and example of the power of the mind to uh, affect a person's health. Uh, And you also pointed out right off the top the um, fact that that even complicated situations, seemingly complicated situations, can sometimes have simple solutions. And my experience over the last 25 years with over 7,000 people who've had stress-related illnesses uh, confirms those things. Let me give you another uh, example of the the power of the mind. Um, The very first story in my book is about a woman who was a happily married librarian with two young children. Everything in her life was going well. And then all of a sudden, uh, out of the blue, with no obvious reason, she came down with attacks of nausea, vomiting, uh, and dizziness. And these were severe enough she had to be hospitalized. And at first, you know, they ran the usual tests, didn't find anything, but fortunately she got better after a few days and felt fine for the next couple of months until it happened again. And then it happened again a few months after that. And every time that she needed to be hospitalized, more tests were run, specialists were called in. Um, after a, two years of this, uh, a psychiatrist was asked to see her, interviewed her for two hours, found nothing. The illness continued. Uh, and after 15 years of this, with 60 hospitalizations at an outstanding university. Uh, She happened to get ill in my community and was hospitalized at the hospital that I uh, work in. And I went to see her and she said something to me I've never heard from any patient before or since, which was to thank me for stopping by and to recommend that I spend my time with my other patients because she was convinced there was nothing I could do for her. I couldn't resist a challenge like that and I sat down and asked her to tell me her story. And we went through it, and 
began talking about stresses in her life. And a little over an hour later, we had a diagnosis. And just as you pointed out at the top of the hour, uh, the solution for her was very simple. Um, and she never had another attack. Now, what was wrong with her? Well, it turns out rather, rather surprisingly to me in my medical education that her major stress happened when she was a child. Um, I had no exposure to this as a doctor in training. Um, 25 years ago, if I saw somebody whose diagnostic tests were normal, I just assumed it was all in their head and that there was nothing that we could do for them uh, because basically their problem was uh, they weren't coping with life very well. And I'm sad to say this, uh, this was how I felt back then because I've learned since then that the exact opposite is true. We can make a specific diagnosis. Uh, we can find out what's wrong. And there is effective treatment available uh, for nearly everybody with this. Because what we're talking about here are hidden stresses. We're talking about stresses that the person doesn't fully recognize they have. They may be aware of sort of the tip of the iceberg, but they don't see the full impact of what's going on beneath the surface. And these stresses don't cause any visible damage to the body. So when we go to do our diagnostic tests, there's nothing for the test to find. You have to get to know the uh, patient as a person. You have to get to know uh, who are they um, as a person. And that's what I did uh, with my librarian friend uh, from Seattle. Uh, I talked to her about her early life, um, that she had been emotionally and verbally abused by her mother. Uh, her parents divorced when she was very young. Uh, her mother absolutely hated her father, and she had the misfortune of physically resembling him. So she displaced a lot of her anger onto um, this poor young girl. When she remarried and had two more children, the two new children got all of the, the good stuff. They got the presence, they got the, the affection, they got uh, the support, they got the attention. And my patient got the chores. As she put it, she grew up like Cinderella, but without the prince. She happened to say that with her husband sitting right there, but he seemed like a reasonable guy. In any case, the verbal and emotional abuse continued on into her adult years. She was now 54 years old, and it was still going on. And nobody had, uh, had connected this uh, with her illness, uh, but yet it turns out to be one of the most important things uh, to look for in somebody with unexplained symptoms. Uh, if a person looks back at their own childhood and they say to themselves, I would never want an innocent child to go through something like that, then it's quite possible that those events are still having an effect today and can have effects uh, for decades after the person has grown up uh, and left home. Now, it turned out there was one other um, key in her history of her illness that solved the dilemma. And this was that although most of her attacks of illness would happen in and around her home, there was one uh, exception. And this was that whenever she passed through a little town I call Mapleton, she would always get one of her attacks. This was about 45 minutes away from where she lived. Uh, but in, in asking her about this, um, she could think of no connection to that community at all. Uh, nobody that she knew lived there. She had uh, no particular reason to go there. Um, and she had racked her brains for 15 years trying to understand what the connection was. But putting these two facts together, the childhood abuse, the ongoing uh, verbal put-downs, and this uh, peculiar uh, coincidence of getting sick in Mapleton, uh, it didn't take long to figure out that the only time she ever went to Mapleton was when she was driving to visit her mother. She would get in the car, she would start the drive. She would start thinking about the upcoming visit to her mother. She's got enormous emotional tension in that relationship that begins to build as she thinks about the upcoming visit and how difficult and painful it's going to be. 
And by the time she gets 45 minutes away from home, her husband's got to pull the car over, and she's vomiting all over the guardrail. So I pointed this out to her, and I thought, you know, this is clearly what's going on here. She remained a little skeptical because the, the power of the emotions um, are, are buried. When we're growing up in an, in an environment like this, we take those emotions and we stuff them away in a, in a strong box somewhere way in the back of our minds so, so we don't have to constantly endure the emotional pain of, of those uh, uh, feelings. And so she wasn't fully in touch with them and didn't recognize their power. So I pointed out to her, or at least I asked her, uh, if she was to drive 45 minutes in any other direction from her home, would she ever get sick? And she thought about it for a minute and recognized that she could drive anywhere as long as it wasn't going to visit her mother and she'd be fine. And that was when the light bulb went on and she recognized uh, everything that had been happening for the last 15 years. And then her husband chimes in with the idea that she had become ill many times after speaking with her mother on the phone. And that just strengthened the connection for her. And in her case, that was all she needed, just a chance to to see the power of those uh, buried emotions uh, uh, full on uh, for the first time and be able to use her considerable verbal skills uh, to work on them. And that was the end of her illness. Uh, once she could uh, comprehend what was happening, um, the emotions lost their power, uh, no longer needed to be uh, expressed through her body, and she never had another attack. And there's, there's a lot to learn from, from this example. Um, and it's, it's one of the things to learn is that this is enormously common. Um, as you pointed out, uh, something like half the people who go to the doctor have no uh, visible cause uh, for their symptoms, even after a year's worth of uh, diagnostic tests. Um, it's been, as I said, over 7,000 people in my career. I appreciate that example. Thank you. One of the startling things that we see today are the number of children being diagnosed with depression and bipolar. In your experience, have you ever seen a kid that was not capable of both laughing and crying within about 30 seconds of each other? <laughs> um, my, my patients are um, go down in, in years to about the teens. Um, I don't take care of the younger ones, but uh, you're certainly right. Any, any kid that you see, can uh, their emotions can swing back and forth pretty dramatically. And there's a danger in trying to pathologize normal behavior. We may not like the normal behavior, but it's normal. It's not a pathology. And we have gotten to the place where we're looking to medicate, but first diagnose. And even the process of creating a diagnosis, the DMS-4, is not based upon science. It's based upon belief. A group of individual psychiatrists sit in a room and with a show of hands determine whether or not a particular part of our behavior is normal or pathological. If it's pathological, it's brain imbalance, hence mental illness. And therefore, the remedies are generally, more often than not, drug-based or drug-based with some form of therapy, talk therapy. The problem is medicine should not be faith-based. Religion, yes. Personal lifestyles, yes. But if we're going to say that medicine is also uh, science, then we have to say that what a person believes is a power to them. There is no such thing as an inner placebo in this respect because the mind is never inert. It either believes something or doesn't believe something. The proof of that was in a study done in Italy where a group of specialists were told 
that there was a really powerful new drug that had no side effects and enormous healing capacity. When the doctors gave it to the patients, it worked, statistically significantly, and yet it was a placebo. The belief by the doctor in the drug allowed the patient to support that belief, hence the energy of exchange. So on the one hand, we talk about hard medicine, and yet it doesn't exist. There, there, you cannot take hard medicine without the pliableness of the human psyche of the patient. So it's only when there's some alignment that everything is subjective. Everything is, is a, a point to where we can mold uh, our own energy with that of a patient that we might have some healing. And people come with a cookbook and say, ah, depression. Well, let's give you the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or the new category of selective serotonin. And you say, well, you're not asking me about anything in my childhood. Well, well, we're dealing with you now. Yeah, but you mean nothing from my childhood is going to impact now? Hello. And I want you to get into this, if you would, please. I believe that one of our problems today with depression and anxiety is we have not understood the power of early hardwired perceptions that we have roiled in our brain a million times. Because when we have something that we cannot feel happy about the resolution, we reconfigure it. And every time we think on it, and it's been proven that we actually rewire that brain. It's as if we're expanding the program all the time. And we do it in such a subjective way that we can take something and virtually change the entire dynamic of what actually occurred, hence false memory syndrome. That was a complete nonsense. Any of us that had a brain saw that, but everybody else said, oh, no, it's real. It's not, it wasn't real. But a lot of lives were shattered. So now what I see is I see people trying to resolve their conflicts in the nature of a relationship. And one of the reasons I believe so many relationships cannot succeed is because the person is looking at the relationship as a safe sanctuary where they'll have more control over that than the relationship they had where the problem occurred. Mother, father, brother, sister, those people no longer have the same power in a person's life. And they're assuming now I can go into this relationship and I can relive some of what happened but with a happy outcome. Or I won't have this happen. But if you're going into any relationship with the idea that somehow that relationship is to re, redo a part of your life that you don't like, to paint a new picture because the first one was a horror picture and now you want a happy love romantic comedy, then it can't possibly work, sustain, because the responsibility of the person to be a modern-day therapist cannot in itself be tenable. And yet we don't see this. But what we do see is patterns of behavior. Example, people who early in life were rebellious and part of their defiance to maintain some sense of their own identity was to be defiant about boundaries. So today there are no boundaries. They respect no one's boundaries. So it doesn't matter what you're doing or who you are, they will trans transgress your boundaries because they have a need for it. And if you respond, then they accuse you and blame you of being insensitive or callous to their needs. And hence, their whole mind has been rewired to justify that anyone who says anything critical of me is reminding me 
of who was critical earlier in life and how I dealt with that and how I'm dealing with this, and it's the same reaction. So everything that person does is a action-reaction, action-reaction, yes. beta trap, wait for someone to step on it, and they go, ah, gotcha. Yeah. And then all they do is display their emotions. Now then, my last point is, I don't believe that most people's emotions within the context of most of their lives are authentic to that moment. I believe most of our emotions are preconditioned responses uh, unless we're completely attentive to the moment. If we're watching a sunset, if we're engaged in some blissful experience, just a pure happy experience with no expectations and we're present, those can be completely legitimate. But for most interactions with people, we already know what we need and whether we're honest with that person or not. Our agenda is, you got to give me something. Here's how I'm going to bait you. Here's how I'm going to lure you. Here's how I'm going to reel you in. And then, wham, I got you. But if you don't like that and you respond in any way that I consider inappropriate, then my emotions will immediately be pushed motion A, anger, B, disappointment, martyr, victim. And then I will play my victim tape. And then suddenly you have a victim tape going da-da-da, and then the person is made to feel guilt and shame that maybe they'll come around and say, oh, okay, yeah, I'm sorry that you're not feeling good about yourself. All of which is just a game. And most relationships today are games. Irrespective of how methodical they are, they don't work. 98% of all relationships don't work. They could only if the person who's going into a relationship is first a healthy, happy, balanced person and is not using the relationship to redeem what part of life they have missed. And if you think another person is going to fill that big empty hole, that aching sense of incompleteness and loneliness, think again. Because just the search for that creates stress and distress. The games that you will manipulate to try to get someone in will create distress. And because you cannot control the ultimate outcome of what another person is going to say or feel towards you, that anticipation and manipulation creates distress. And if all you do is manipulate yourself to be acceptable by what you perform in any relationship, then that creates stress. So all four corners of this approach are foundations of stress. And in fact, you have the perfect storm of stress. Yes. It's just hidden. And then one day someone says, well, that woman didn't work out or that guy didn't work out. And you say, hold on a second. Why don't I look in the mirror and be honest about what I need and why I'm expecting others to fill it and what problems I'm bringing to this and what unresolved conflict from my past I'm trying to resolve? Because if you don't resolve something from your past, you absolutely, positively, unequivocally are going to try to find a way to make it work today. And it can't. You can't undo what your parents did. You can only understand the significance of it and surrender the energy that you've attached to it. Hence, you no longer have the energy exchange. Because otherwise, then subconsciously in your mind, anyone who doesn't give you what you want becomes that demon from the past. And then you're going to react in a way that's ir- that is immature, it is immature and irresponsible. 
but you won't take responsibility for that. Hence, you'll just continue on with the next person, next place, and it goes ad nauseum. Your thoughts? You've put your finger right on one of the principal challenges (laughs) of my work. How do you get somebody's brain to be rewired into a healthy way? And and how do you do that from as as an author? You know, not just you know sitting with someone in an examining room where I get a chance to talk with them and interact with them, but how do you do it just merely through the printed page and a big challenge there. But what I've tried to do with that is I put four dozen stories uh, in the book. And, and there's a good example at uh, the website stressillness.com uh, on an ex- excerpt. But those four dozen stories show how my patients have found the hidden stresses in their lives. It gives insight into how the reader can find their own hidden stresses and then can make changes, can uh, go forward with that and um, make changes in their own wiring. Let me give you an example. Um, about over half of my patients uh, have been through stress uh, when they were kids, which we know from uh, functional MRI studies and from other work produces changes in the person's uh, brain wiring. How are we going to change that? Well, what I want patients to understand who've been through uh, challenges when they were growing up is that it, it's like they were born on the far side of Mount Everest and that they had to climb up and over to get to become adults. I want them to look at those early challenges not as a source of shame and regret, not as a source of, of feeling like they're a second-rate human being, uh, but as a source of pride and something that they've overcome, that they were born into that circumstance, it wasn't through any fault of their own, uh, and they had to cope with it, they had to deal with it, they had to uh, uh, respond to it, uh, they had to be vigilant, they had to be paying attention to details. Um, They had to sometimes uh, take care of younger siblings. They had to manage parental violence or alcoholism or drug abuse, or they had to uh, take to somehow cope with uh, an individual who was violating the boundaries of their body. And they had to do this when they were children. They had to do it without uh, without any training, uh, without any anybody giving them moral support. Uh, You know, when you think about uh, who we think of as heroes in our society. We think of people who have come through a a difficult emotional or physical challenge and and survived that and and, uh, triumphed over it and um, have done so for a good cause. But a a person who has survived childhood stress has done exactly the same thing, only they've done it without any of the advantages of an adult. Uh, They've done it for years. They've done it without a break. They've done it without uh, their their firehouse squad mates or their platoon buddies giving them moral support. Uh, So in many ways, they're even more heroic uh, than people we commonly think of as heroes in our society. And if if an individual who's come through those experiences can think of themselves in that way, can think of themselves as somebody who has triumphed, who is is heroic, it changes everything. It's a 180-degree flip in uh, their mental wiring. Uh, They're no longer going to tolerate being treated as a second-rate human being, either in their workplace uh, or in their relationships. One of my patients um, uh, had been sexually abused as a child um, up to the age of 12. Um, At the age of 35, she finally, uh, through um, her being so attentive to details and and so compassionate towards others, um, gained a lot of self-respect in the workplace and in her home where she had a good relationship. And she just one day decided, you know, I don't deserve to be treated badly anymore because she had a toxic boss. She was working in an environment where she was essentially emotionally abused all over again in the workplace. And she'd been in that environment for 10 years, but that that one day her self-esteem finally reached a a crest and where she just said, I am not taking this anymore. I deserve better. Uh, I'm going to um, not accept 
any treatment of me uh, that is along the lines of what you were describing earlier, Gary, that, that, that negativity that uh, goes on in so many relationships. She just said, I am a, a heroic survivor. I am not tolerating this anymore. Walked out of the job, had no difficulty finding a new environment where she felt honored and respected, uh, made all the difference in the world for her. That's terrific. We must see the red flags. If we don't, then we'll be lulled into this. And part of, I believe, the solution is being aware of how, how insidious a problem can be. Rarely will a person ever be open initially and tell you what's wrong in their lives because they're afraid of being rejected. They'll think, well, I'm damaged merchandise. That's right. So instead, they try to see your weakness. People are master psychologists. They don't give themselves the credit they deserve. They're behavioralist. They'll see what you need within generally the first four or five meetings, whether it's sexual or behavioral. Um, if it's someone that um, they see that you need to talk about things, they'll be that willing ear. What the person's not aware of is that this isn't coming from an authentic place of compassion and concern. <clears throat> it is not coming from a non-judgmental place. They're highly judgmental. Yet it's only with a non-judgmental ear that you hear everything. With a non-judgmental mind, you see everything for what it is, the best or worst of something, and don't then connect with it. Because when we connect with something, we've already lost our perspective and balance. Just let something be what it is. I'd rather have someone say uh, that they're a racist and are first appreciating that they had never understood this before than someone who denies that they're racist, but it's clear from their behavior that they are. And because we're terrified of being rejected. So this terror of rejection had to come from someplace. Everything in our behavior came from our background. We were not born that way. And so when we go back and take the time and the energy, which really has to be that quiet, introspective time, you can't do it in the harried lifestyle that we create or the distracting lifestyle that we create. And you ask, where's the likelihood that I develop this behavior? You'll find it. And once you find it, then you can say, how did I adapt to it? Because the problem is not things that happen to us. It's how we maladapted to that problem. Because our maladaptation then becomes a way that we maladapt in our current relationships, whether work relationships or friend relationships or people relationships. And then at some point when we feel comfortable enough that we're working the other person's weakness to our advantage, where the person feels as if they need us in their lives on some level, then we begin to see more of that person. Then it's kind of a balance. It's almost like the cost-risk-benefit ratio. Should I keep this person in my life? Should I not? What am I getting? What do I got to tolerate? And I don't believe relationships should be based upon that. Absolutely not. I mean, if I had an employee that was stealing, but they also sold a lot of books, I'd fire them. I wouldn't, I wouldn't for a second weigh that. And if someone was very good sex, but you know, had a terrible, negative, toxic disposition, I can live without the sex. Thank you. I don't need it. All right? Right. But we all the time are weighing these two, re these two realities. How much tolerance do I have to maintain in order to accept what I don't like, what is clearly toxic or negative, in order to get something that I find a value? 
that shows as much about the person who's gotten in uh, gotten someone into their lives as it does the person who has insinuated themselves into our lives. And there is where all of our energy goes. Our energy in our society is all about the dysfunction within the relationship and who's to blame and choosing sides and then trying to have almost like a uh, almost like the 1917 uh, French and German troops at each other's you know you could you know that they were 50 feet away from each other in the trenches. A relationship shouldn't be based upon this, any kind of relationship, you know, and, and if that is what you have and you master the art of adapting to it and manipulating it, then you've learned those lessons. But where did you learn the art of manipulation? Where did you learn the art of adapting? Then look at the parent that adapted to the more dynamic energy of the dominant person, mother or father or someone else, or in tribal societies, it's always the hierarchical person within the society, not the mother or father, but who is the head of the tribe? And you adapt to that, whether you like it or not. It's a way you tend to survive, as if there's no place else in the world you could survive. Well, there is, but you're not going to take that opportunity to see. Or there's no other relationship. But you think, I've committed so much to this. And then people start binding you in a duct tape that is hermetically sealed by guilt and shame and fear and remorse. And by the time you think about saying goodbye They've already sealed your mouth and part of your psyche. How did they learn how to use guilt and shame? And how do they use it? And when you are so aware that someone is playing this, then you've got to stop and say, hold on a second. That's right. We can't do this anymore. You can't transcend my boundaries and assume that I'm going to accept it. I'm not. And if you don't like the reaction you get, don't blame me for being insensitive. Look at yourself for being manipulative. That duct tape needs to come off. you got you got to take it off, and then you've got to reestablish what you need. And if we need someone else to feel good about ourselves, then we need help. And we've got to stop thinking that Oprah's going to give it. She doesn't. And we've got to stop looking for other people in a relationship or a workplace. That's not going to do it. Or another big thing we do in our society is we lose ourselves to fads and causes. I'm not feeling good about myself. I'll go be a part of uh, uh, some human rights movement. It is not to negate the virtue of a, any movement. It is, to, it is to question why we are so emphatic in how we approach it. I've said it on several occasions, and some people in this audience have not understood the context and hence the meaning. Um, but I've said that I don't hang out with vegans, and uh, though I'm a vegan, I don't hang out with you know, people that do yoga and spiritual practices because I don't like them. I find them hypercritical, judgmental, self-righteous, moralizing. And the last thing I want to do is hang out with someone who's going to be negative. I want to hang out with people who can be relaxed and enjoyful with all their flaws. We all have flaws. So lighten up, you know, and, and don't, if you're going to be with someone, don't constantly find the need to judge them. And I've, I've seen people like that. And I've seen them at health retreats. I've seen, oh, God, you could, you could fill a toxic land up with the emotions come out of those people. And it's almost like a spitting cobra. A cobra never spits enough venom that they're out of venom. They keep reproducing it. People who are locked into their negativity, no matter where they go, they're like a toxic uh, typhoid Mary. My librarian's mother, absolutely. They never stop. So we have to say, if they're not going to stop, why did we get ourselves into this? Why didn't we say no? 
what do we have to learn so we can learn someone else's lessons for ourselves if they're not willing to learn them so we're wiser and healthier and stronger for the negative experience and say thank goodness this passage is behind me but let me learn the lessons of it so the next lesson I do will be one that is more positive and less likely to find that I will put myself in that trap your thoughts please what's what I've done in my book four dozen lessons uh, that cover the whole spectrum of these different uh, toxicities that can affect us Um, you've given us some very good examples of how uh, early experiences, early negative experiences can affect us uh, long term. Let me give you another one that I've seen uh, very commonly in my practice that uh, a lot of people may not be uh, fully aware of. And what I'm talking about here is a a person who um, takes care of everybody else in their world but never gets around to taking care of themselves. Um, they're the kind of person that uh, they never put themselves on the list of people they take care of. And and that catches up with you after a while. That becomes uh, a, a stress that, that never stops uh, building and building until eventually it goes beyond just uh, exhaustion and fatigue and struggling and goes on into uh, full-fledged uh, physical symptoms, real physical symptoms. And what I found in, in, is the common denominator in many patients like this is that they never learn to play as children. They were never given the opportunity to play as children. Because when we play, when we're, when we're sitting there as children just joyfully doing whatever comes to mind, whatever comes naturally, whatever is fun in the moment, um, we're teaching ourselves how to care for ourselves. We're teaching ourselves self-care skills. Um, one of my patients, uh, you know, this can happen when you're abused, and it can happen when there's violence or, or drug abuse in the home. But one of my patients had a, a much more subtle uh, cause for this. She was a, a, a springboard diver. Uh, she ended up uh, being a national champion uh, in high school. But she had done this sport before school, after school, and on weekends from the age of four. It became like her job. Uh, in middle school, her father apologized to her for pushing her so hard. Uh, she never had a chance to really just relax and, and be a kid like uh, other children. So we flash forward uh, into her 30s, and she's working full-time. She's taking care of her husband, her household, her two children. She's uh, t- coaching diving. She's on the swim club board of directors. She's driving other children to out-of-state competitions. Nowhere is there any room for her. And one day, she just absolutely hit the wall, and she wound up in the emergency room with severe abdominal pain. The The treatment for her was to do uh, what you were describing before, Gary, just taking some time to be with people who are just uh, enjoyable, uh, who are not judgmental. Happy. Happy. Happy people. Taking some time for yourself to, <clears throat> to do the moral equivalent of, a, of finger paints for a four-year-old. Um, a four-year-old doesn't care how many pictures per hour they produce. They don't care about the quality of the work. They don't care who sees it. They just know they're having a ball. And, and when she was able to learn how to do that, and it took her a couple of months. I mean, she had to fight through feeling guilty. Uh, the first time she tried this, she, after 15 minutes, she couldn't stand it and had to go clean the kitchen. Uh, but eventually, she learned how to do these things for herself. Um, she went, started out walking through the park, uh, just uh, enjoying the moment. Uh, one day while she was walking, she heard somebody playing a piano, thought it sounded wonderful, began taking lessons, and that's when her pains went away. It's that simple. Very frequently it is, yeah. Um, I believe that one of the reasons that you and I, both baby boomers, had a happier upbringing, not idealistic, not perfect, we all went through crisis, we all had problems, is because we didn't have as many professional parents. I believe that we have to re-examine what happens when a person is so overachieved in their own life, the standards that they bring to their children can become insurmountable 
And what frequently the child is missing is just happy time. Don't make me try to work hard or think, you know, deeper or overachieve. Just let me be happy because professionals hate downtime. They feel very uncomfortable, just totally relaxed. And there's always an element of proving. After all, they got successful and accomplished by proving their value. So then the judgments towards everyone else in their environment is prove your value, prove your love, prove your intelligence, prove your achievement. And no little kid can do that. They're not prepared intellectually or emotionally. We, we could go out and play. We could get in fights. We could uh, break some bones occasionally, falling out of trees. We'd build little clubhouses, build little forts, and come home, and Mom would say, how is it? Okay. And that was it. You know, <laughs> No big deal, right? Right, right. <laughs> Nothing was a big deal. Four people drinking out of one bottle of a pop, and nobody got sick. You know, it was no big deal. Today... We have so many professional parents, so many successful parents, that lost in all this is the essence and innocence of the child, the young child, the teenager, who needs to be the person they were meant to, but doesn't have the support system that the people are going to. Yeah, I'm one of those professional parents, and uh, you know, thank God I, I learned so much from my patients about uh, how to raise my own kids. Uh, you know, I would get a chance to talk to people about uh, what things were like for them when they were young, uh, what kind of people they turned out to be as adults, and what kinds of challenges they had. And from that, uh, you know, I learned that I needed to, to back off on my own kids. I needed to give them support and, and not be all over the details where, where they were concerned, uh, which was very much of a struggle for me because I'm, I'm all over the details in most other aspects of my life. But when it came to my kids, I just wanted to tell them, you guys are great. Uh, just, just go for it. And, uh, you know, we're going to set some pretty broad boundaries for you. But within that, uh, you guys go check it out. You're going to make some mistakes. Hey, I did the same thing when I was your age. Uh, and they turned out to be just wonderful uh, young men that I just thoroughly enjoy spending time with. And, and I really am grateful to my patients for showing me what not to do. Well, I think you've done a, a remarkably important work here that people need to read. Thank you. I think it's going to help a lot of people. And I want to thank you very much for coming in and being in the studio today. It's been a pleasure. My guest, Dr. David Clark. He is Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine with the Oregon Health and Science University and Clinical Instructor at Pacific University and a member of the Academy of Psychosomatic Medicine and is the author of Stress Illnesses. And what's the website? Stress Illness, stressillness.com.